you go ahead and have a seat, everybody. I'm so glad to see you. I love that kind of song. It gets in your blood and it gets to ringing through the week. Thank you, Roger. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Do you know that verse that says, perfect love casts out fear? Yeah, that's, that's what we're here to talk about today, is how we deal with our fear. Well, I have a memory when I was a little girl, our family got a postcard in the mail from my Grammy who was traveling in Italy, and it was a picture of Michelangelo's statue of David. She tastefully chose these images, because I was a little girl, right? But I remember sitting and studying this amazing art. I saw that calm, determined look in David's eye, and that rock held lightly in his palm. You know, by then I had heard the story of David and Goliath many times, of course. But I was just a kid, and I, I couldn't help but notice this expression on David's face. He was unruffled. Now, it was just incredible art to me when I was a little kid, but I remember those images. It was like they were chiseled into my brain. So now, as an adult, looking back, I just can imagine David in that moment, saying with an unruffled attitude, simply, the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you all into our hands. You know, we're going to get to look at this story in detail today. It's one of the best-known stories inside and outside the church, right? Everybody's heard David and Goliath. Well, I want you to see this image. This is a pen and ink drawing done by our own David Barrett. And it's hanging over here in the hallway opposite the restrooms. I hope that you make a habit of checking on that wall because our artists do a fantastic job of helping us contemplate what we get out of Scripture. And, you know, we may have heard this story first as a kid, but we get to be lifelong learners, right? Is that you? I'm grateful because as an adult, this story is helping me think about how I face my fears. Now, what we usually think of when we hear David and Goliath is we're supposed to find that raw courage like David did. I mean, you need to go out and slay your giant because, you know, the bigger your giant, the harder they fall, right? Well, there's so much we can learn from David's example, from his character. We're going to talk a lot about that today. But what I have noticed about this particular account is that the message, just be like David, is actually shallow for me. And that, I'll just be honest, it really doesn't work for me when reality hits because every life gets assaulted eventually by one kind of fear or another. And for me, I'm just too weak to just be like David and just, you know, go slay the giant. I think that David facing down Goliath says something much deeper about our facing our fears. So I want to ask if you would get out your uh, notes that look like this in your program and a pen. And if you brought your Bible, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, that's where we're going to be this whole morning. And we're going to talk about how to face my fears. First, now I need to realize I have a persistent enemy. I want to ask you to look with me at the big picture here, and in particular at Israel's army, to see the situation they were in. See, Israel had a persistent enemy. It says in verse 1, 
Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war in Judah. So the enemy is on Israelite soil. It says they pitched camp. Saul and, his, and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And we might see the word camped and think, oh, camping, I love camping. No. This is ancient warfare. I mean, it was unfathomable. It was hand-to-hand combat. You could see your enemy in the eye. You could smell his breath. And the Philistines now, they were relentlessly harassing Israel. They were a marauding sort of pirate nation. The Philistines were savages. They would put swords in their chariot wheels, and they could mow through infantry just like you're cutting through grass. The Israelites had just come through a battle where 30,000 of their soldiers had been slaughtered. And now here they are again. And verse 3 says, The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Now, look, they were looking across a vast canyon with a riverbed in the bottom. And they were looking at this mighty army that was all suited up with armor when they had none. You see... The Philistine military was way ahead because they had already entered the Iron Age. The only people in Israel who had any armor were King Saul and his son Jonathan, and they had stolen it. And what strikes me is how much I'm like Israel. I have a persistent enemy as well. You have an enemy. I mean, we don't give him much airtime, and that's on purpose, but his name is Satan. You might think, well, that's obvious. But I was surprised to find out that George Barna, the guy who does polls, he discovered that four out of ten Christians strongly agreed that Satan is not a living being but is a symbol of evil. And this is what LT found. Most Americans, even those who say they are Christian, have doubts about the intrusion of Satan and demons into the natural world. He says it's hard for achievement-driven, self-reliant, independent people to believe that their lives can be impacted by unseen forces. Now listen, if you fail to even recognize that you really do have a persistent enemy, you're vulnerable. So there's just a couple of basic things I want to tell you about our enemy. First, we're told that he is looking for someone who is unguarded. Look at this verse. Be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And second, look at what Jesus himself said. That every time your enemy speaks in your ear, he's lying. Look at what he says. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, If lying and distortion is Satan's native language, then it's imperative for your spiritual health that you understand, you realize that you have this persistent enemy, and then you choose to believe the Bible. Look at this promise that you're given in James. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So that's like basic training, okay? Knowing something about your enemy. But second, in order to face my fears, 
I need to realize my situation is desperate. Israel's situation sure was desperate. Look at this in verse 4. It says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. This guy was enormous. He probably was part of the race called Anakin. This guy had leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin. And just the tip of his spear had an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. I think about it this way. If you had a 15-pound bowling ball and you tied it to an 8-foot spear, if you had the brute strength enough to throw it with enough accuracy to actually turn it into a weapon, that's what Goliath was like. And then add to that, he had a shield bearer who carried a shield as tall as a grown man, walked ahead of him. Goliath dominated every day, yelling his challenge across that valley, not just once, but verse 16 tells us twice a day for 40 days in a row. I imagine how his unrelenting taunts echoed across that valley. This day... I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Thank you, Daryl. It was an in-your-face reminder of the very real prospect of losing this battle. And then their wives and their children would be slaves of these uncivilized Philistines. Look at verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now Saul, we're talking about King Saul. We're told in scripture that Saul was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in Israel. Now, who, else, who should have been out there fighting for his people? Saul. But no, Saul had turned away from God. And without God, what do you have? Little more than your own track record and to look at the size of your problem. This guy had nothing. And his army had bought into his fear. Every day made each man a little more of a coward. And I think in that camp, every night, that every soldier dreamed about Goliath. I mean, he was all they could think about. Everyone took their bearings from Goliath. Their situation really was desperate. Now, can you identify with what these Israelites were feeling, a sense of desperation? What is the giant for you? Is there something that's got you dismayed and terrified? Maybe it's a relational struggle or an addiction or a health issue or a broken relationship or, or maybe it's the loss of someone really precious to you or, or the search for, for a job. Maybe it's simply loneliness. You know, we don't talk a lot about the subject of courage. It, it seems like maybe courage is not a virtue that seems all that necessary today. It's not like ancient times when life was brutal. I don't know, some of us felt like it was kind of brutal this week without power, right? But 
It's not like Grass Valley is at risk of being pillaged by a neighboring clan or, or we're about to, to have a plague hit Nevada County and wipe out half the population. But that doesn't mean that we don't experience fear. I think it's possible we can all relate to fear of one thing, and that's shame that comes from feeling like we've failed. I got to watch a, a TED talk by a psychologist named Brene Brown. She talks about shame. She has studied the effects of shame and how it feeds a kind of fear that's pretty common among people. I want to ask you to see if any of this resonates for you. She says this fear is organized by gender, that there's a difference between men and women and how they feel this fear. She says, for women, the best description she knows came from an old commercial, some of you may remember, for a perfume called Anjali. It says, I can put the wash on the line, pack the lunches, hand out the kisses, and be at work by five to nine. I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in a pan, and never let you forget you're a man. For a woman in our culture, it revolves, this fear revolves around do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Brene says, I don't know how much perfume that commercial sold, but I guarantee you it moved a lot of antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. She talks about a web of fear that comes from unobtainable, confusing, conflicting expectations about who we're supposed to be. She says for men, it's not a bunch of conflicting expectations. It's only one. Do not per be perceived as what? Weak. She says men fear the image of failure that is projected on them when they fall off their white horse. Really, though, we can see the common thread, can't we, that for both men and women, it's about the same thing, avoiding weakness at all costs. See, this fear of failure and the shame that goes with it is epidemic in our culture. It's a tool of the liar, right? of the enemy who prowls. See, he wants to distort your identity. He wants to plant that thought, never admit you're weak, because then, you know, you'd be nothing. That's a lie, because actually, it's the pathway to power. It's like those 12 steps that were borrowed from the church. What's the first step? This comes from the big book of AA. We admitted we were what? Powerless. 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 We're talking about complete weakness. Powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. See, this principle, though, isn't just about alcohol or addictions. When I started studying these steps, that's when my spiritual growth started a new climb. I think we could all benefit from studying these 12 steps. And this first one is so powerful because, you see, in every battle, in a fearful situation, like for me this week, it was not just the trivia of not being able to turn on a light. I got the news that my nephew had shingles in his eye. And, you see, it was, it's when I admit that I am powerless in a situation, that's when hope is born. 
You might want to write that down. I admit I'm powerless. Hope is born. Why is that? Well, see, it's admitting that you can't control the outcome that sets you up for this good news. Realize I have a champion who fights for me. Now, the next section of verses, starting at verse 12, tells a bunch about David. It tells how he, he was the youngest of eight sons, Jesse's eight sons, that, that he was the smallest, that he was the overlooked. Now, Ron shared with us last week from chapter 16 some really important background about David. And I hope, if you were not here, that you will go back and listen to that. How David was anointed the future king of Israel, right in front of his dad and his seven older brothers, even though they saw nothing that was king-worthy in David. But he's still a kid. So he's gone back to Bethlehem now to tend sheep, while in chapter 17, the three oldest brothers are following Saul off to the war. And now, when he wasn't tending sheep, He was playing his harp for crazy, tormented King Saul. So now he's kind of got this dual career, okay? Sheep tender, harp player. Now Jesse says to his youngest, hey, go check on your brothers at the fight. Take this cheese to their commander and bring me word. And now this is on your notes in verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. Now watch this. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Would you underline those three words? David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now, this nonsense had been going on for the demoralized army of Israel, this barrage of insulting words for 40 days. But when David heard it, he was hearing it for the first time, right? And he heard it. He conceptualized it. And I have a question for you. How many times does the enemy speak his lies to you? Maybe yelling, maybe whispering, but it's inside your head. But you don't actually hear it. It just becomes the atmosphere where you live life day after day. You're unattractive. You're a loser. You can't compete you might as well give up. Do you stop and confront that lie and say, what am I hearing? That's what David did. Now think of this. Goliath had shouted, send out a man who can fight. And now here we have David. Does he look like he can fight? Like a champion? He's the youngest, the smallest, the overlooked, the shepherd, the musician. Now, I want to be respectful here because I'm a musician. I got my training on the bassoon. Now, most of you are like, what's a bassoon? See, that's just it. It's obscure, just like David's profession. What if we suddenly got word that an imminent threat 
was coming to us of a military invasion? What if we were informed by our government? We are facing a crisis, but don't worry. We have dispatched for all the bassoon players. (laughs) Would you say to yourself, oh, good. They've got it handled. Those bassoon people. See, David was a musician. He wasn't savvy in military things. He didn't look like a champion. But what was it about David that he didn't run? See, he was never confused. Here is what David knew, and he knew it from the shepherding business. We have to measure our obstacles by the size of our God. That belief made him different. Instead of running, it made him plant his feet. And look at what he said next. These are the first recorded words we have in scripture from David. He said, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Ah, that doesn't sound like a runt, does it? See, wise people are not the people with the right answers. Wise people are the ones with the right questions. Asking the right questions honors God and worries the devil. The guys around David told him, well, the one who kills the giant will get great wealth and he'll be exempt from paying taxes and he'll even get the daughters, the king's daughter in marriage. Well, Getting the daughter in marriage turned out to be not such a great deal, as we're going to find out later. But what I want you to see are all the ways that David's weakness is highlighted. This is not on your notes. It says, Eliab, David's oldest brother, burned with anger. Why have you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? He's going, you're conceited, David. You're here just to watch a show. Do you know what? He was mocking David. He was calling him weak. And Saul got word that there was this young man out there. So he says, bring that boy here. And this is what David said to Saul in verse 32. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now look at Saul's assessment of David. Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he's been a fighting man from his youth. Saul is going, you're weak. See, this is what we have to see here. In many ways, David was weak. I mean, if he were looking for followers on Instagram, he wouldn't have many. Even the people who were closest to David, his dad and his brothers were claiming that he was a nobody. The king takes a look at him and says, there's no way. He did not look like a champion. King Saul even tried to shore up David's weakness by putting his own armor on him. He knew he wouldn't be needing it. So David tried it on, right? Saul is a 52 long. David is a 36 regular. So it hangs on him, right? And it wasn't a compliment. David looks ridiculous. And then when David finally does face that giant, Goliath laughed at him. Why? Because he was weak. See, everyone, everyone told David that he couldn't do it. But God showed him that he was made for more. And this is what we need to notice. Write this down. If you don't write down anything else today, 
I want you to get this. David doesn't win in spite of his weakness. David wins because of his weakness. Think about it. In that conversation where David was talking with King Saul, he might have said, yep, I'm a shepherd, lots of hours with sheep. Remember, shepherding is considered the bottom of the barrel job, like the weakest occupation you can have. But he might have said to the king, but when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep, I went after it. I killed those predators. And this is on your notes, starting in 36. And he says to the king, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, like a bear, like a lion that he killed, because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now look at these words. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. I want you to notice how David gives God the credit for every kill. I want to ask you this. When you're at work and you're killing it, do you stop and say, God, that was you? See, what David was like is this weak, awareness of his weakness, dependent guy who was intimate with the Lord moment by moment. And it was because he was doing this job that was considered a weak profession that he was prepared. See, in his weakness, he had gone deep with God. It was out there in those fields that he'd been inspired to write, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything I need. It was in that field that he learned not to be scared of snarling beasts. It was in that field that he learned to be skilled with a sling. David's weakness was key to his victory. Now, why does this matter? Why am I so focused in on David's weakness? Well, it's because we're talking about how we handle our fears. What does God give people who are scared? He doesn't give them an example and say, just be like David, you know, power up and be brave. No, he gives them a savior. And this whole story points start to finish to someone else who was weak. Someone else who didn't win in spite of his weakness, but through his weakness. I'm talking about Jesus. This whole story points me to Jesus, the one who chose to become weak and go to the cross so that he could win my battle with sin and with death. And there's one other aspect of David that points to Jesus. And this is where I get so excited, my heart starts to pound. So I want to ask you, just write this down now. We need to realize that when my champion wins, I win. Like, if you go to court, who do you take with you? An advocate, someone to talk on your behalf, to present your case, to fight your cause, to take charge over your desperate situation. And if your spokesperson, man or woman, is brilliant, you win. But if they say dumb stuff and they fumble, you lose. You rely on your legal representation. And in this story, King Saul gives David the green light. And then David steps out to represent Israel, to be like an advocate 
And I want you to think about this. He wasn't just fighting for his people. He was fighting as his people. In a sense, they were in him. And I want to, I, I just imagine how the eyes of every man in Israel's army were focused on David as he went out. Look in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. As the Philistine moved closer, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out that stone, he slung it and he struck the Philistine. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. When champion David won for Israel, they won. And you know what? They, they won without lifting a finger. It had nothing to do with their performance. It had everything to do with his performance. And he's pointing us to our champion, Jesus who fought the battle for us and won. It's like that second step of the 12 steps. It says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us. Do you know him? Do you believe him? Your higher power? It's Jesus. He stepped out to win the battle for you and everything was riding on the outcome. I just think about the day that his battle raged I'm talking about the day before Jesus went to the cross when he was in that garden. He was so weak and so vulnerable that he sweat blood. You remember Jesus had lived his whole life to please his father. In fact, in one place he said, my food is to do my father's will. But here we see him struggling, not sure about his father's will. He actually says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He knew what was ahead. I love this quote from Tim Keller. He said, Christianity is the only religion where God had to be brave. Think of it. Here Jesus is wrestling with a choice before him, wrestling to find courage. And I just imagine how all of heaven held its breath and then Jesus says, nevertheless, not what I want. Your will be done. See, he faced down your enemy, enemy by choosing weakness, by surrendering his will. It's like the third step says, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. See, that's what our champion Jesus did for us. But really, Jesus took even more costly steps than David did. Because really, David only walked through the valley of the shadow of death. But when Jesus surrendered his will, he walked into death. And then when he rose from the grave, 
He conquered death and his victory became your victory. When my champion wins, I win. Now, I want to say this gently because I don't know the battle you're facing. You might be facing a battle called cancer or divorce or parenting or search for a job. Maybe the enemy is lying to you and saying, hey, you might as well just give up. But the misery comes, listen, when you wrestle and you fight on the inside. The truth is, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're facing today. There's a lot of courage and peace to be found in surrendering. We have a young woman named Anna who's part of our church family. She's in her first semester away from home at college. And just a couple of weeks ago, she had a situation that was very scary for her, where she was victimized. She's a photography major, and she parked her car on a roadway, and she locked it, and then she went over a hillside to take a picture and came back in five minutes' time to discover that her car had been broken into, obviously the work of professionals, and thousands of dollars of photography equipment had been stolen, as well as her purse and her personal information and credit cards and the whole works. And she was really upset. So I sent her a text just to comfort and give her some empathy and tell her I was praying. And she answered me, and I just wanted to share with you her reply. And she gave me permission to tell you. She said, thank you so much, Kim. It's definitely not a fun experience and very violating, but I have to keep telling myself it could have been much worse and that it's good that nothing happened to me, that it will all work out because, listen, God is in control. When I heard her say that, I thought, wow, I mean, this young woman is saying the outcome is outside of my control. And God loves me and he fights for me, so I'm going to trust him. See, that kind of peace and courage comes when you surrender to him. When you choose to admit you're weak and you make Jesus your champion. You know what he gets to do is showcase his own strength. He gets the glory just like he did in David's situation. He's saying to you today, this battle isn't yours to fight. Let Jesus be your champion. But the decision is yours. It starts with saying this, I can't, God can, I think I'll let him. I'm not saying if you trust in Jesus to be your champion that you'll never have a problem. In fact, this week you're sure to have another opportunity. You might get agitated or frustrated or sad or depressed or angry. But you can turn that into another moment to surrender the outcome to him. To say, it's too big for me. But you can also pray to him and say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. See, God loves to use the weak things, your weak moments, to show what he can accomplish through someone whose heart is fully his. You were made for more. You can tell him today, Lord, this is how I'm going to fight my battles.
let's pray to our champion, shall we? Almighty God, we thank you. Thank you for the beautiful picture you've given us through your servant David. And we just can imagine how he kept you in his sights and that's what enabled him to stand and look at that giant and know that you would overcome. And this morning, we want to lift up those in our in the room here with us or watching online, Lord, who are facing very real and very intimidating circumstances. If that's you, you might just want to turn your palms over and just say, God, I can't, but you can, and so I'm going to let you. You are my advocate. You are my champion. And Lord, as we remember David, we thank you. Thank you for the example that he led out just like Jesus did. And we want to agree today together that we are not the ones to face down and conquer the giants in our lives, that it's you, the Lord of hope. You did it then. You can do it now. And we pray that you would do it to the glory of your name. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray and agree. Amen.